So we'd like to welcome everybody back to the Nova Society. And today our guest is Dr. Stephanie Cradle. She's the CEO of Chrysalis Enterprises in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, kind of just up the road, uh, and is an accomplished practitioner with over 30 years of government service and 24 years or 25 years of EEO experience. She retired from federal service in August of 2020, and uh, after serving on NAVC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Director, where she was responsible for developing and executing EEO programs for over 35,000 employees worldwide. And we'd like to welcome Stephanie to the podcast. And today we'll be talking about uh, the National Authorization Act and some of the implications that that act will have for uh, DEI programs in the federal government. So welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Mark. It's good to be here with you. It's good to see you again, too. After so long. Maybe I shouldn't have said so After, after so you. long. I, mean, <laughs> I need you. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, when, when it said that you're retired, I thought, no, Stephanie isn't nearly old enough to be retired. Come on. Me, I'm old enough to be retired, but not Stephanie. No way. So, all right. So you were, we were when you came on, you were asking me about the National Authorization Act, which Again, when, when I looked at it, um, of course, we all jump to the thing that is, you know, the thing that jumps out to us. And of course, being of the political science mind, uh, the idea of that agencies and programs and the, the part of the act that authorizes the enactment of appropriations and specifies how those appropriated funds are to be used. So that's what I focused on. But then you brought to my attention that this really does have an impact on DEI. And so, so can you explain that to me? Absolutely. You know, so here's one of the things that after working in the federal government for um, 30 plus years, and as you said, 25 of that being in the equal employment opportunity career field. First of all, recognize um, how programs are, are implemented and operated within the Department of Defense. And I think there is a lot of, of you know, scuttlebutt about, you know, the critical race theory and how we are, are you know, training and developing not only uh, civilian employees, but our military armed forces. And, and so the Equal Employment Opportunity Office, for the most part throughout my career, had the mandate of doing what we call special emphasis programs. And that meaning, you know, just kind of raising awareness, calling attention to the contributions that different groups of people bring um, to the workforce, uh, you know, challenging uh, our employees to work together, to learn how to connect very well with those who are not quite like them, who have different cultures and different backgrounds. And never at any point in my federal career was there ever a, an attempt to um, marginalize anyone in a particular group. And so when you think about that is that the, the charge was to you know, bring awareness later on to recognize this whole value of diversity and inclusion. It's one thing to be aware, the other thing to be able to, in, to be inclusive of people. And so we have federal mandates. The, um, uh, the EEO office is charged with not only bringing awareness, but also raising concerns with discrimination or allegations of discrimination. So when I saw this act, saw this in you know, this National Defense Authorization Act is H.R. 2670, just passed the House. 
I was kind of mortified because one of the things that it did was actually uh, cap the salaries of people who are employed in the um, diversity and inclusion arena. Can you imagine that, I mean, Mark? So when I um, worked for the government, there was already what seemed to be a little bit of a disparity between uh, people who were in the human relations area. So this act really does just kind of press people in the EEO field into um, lower um, salaries. So, for, so I don't know how much you know about government, but the GS scales run from GS1 to GS15. Mm-hmm. And um, when you get past the GS, you know, your, your mid-grade um, positions and then your high-grade positions from 13 to 15. This act says that anybody in the EEO field, anybody who is, um, let me make be clear, anyone who is in the diversity, inclusion, and, and, and equity fields, your salary is capped at the GS-10 level. That means you cannot go any higher than that. They cannot hire anyone um, beyond that. It says, okay, so if you are currently employed in that field, what they would do is have to figure out a way to reassign you if you are already at a higher grade to another position outside of that that grade. So that's that's my general read right now of, of what the act is is doing. It's debilitating, I mean, demoralizing for people who spent their lives in this career field already uh, with sometimes not being funded uh, to the to the um, rate that you believe. A lot of the times, Mark, you know, I thank God for my Nova Southeastern experience because I was able to develop my own in-house training because I never had the kind of budget that much for me to go out and pull in. Um, you know, people who were who were experts in their field um, to come in and conduct training. My budget wasn't big enough. And so I ended up, you know, going to school, getting my degree, um, going back to to be able to augment the training that I got from the government with training, um, at, you know, in the, in the academic world to be able to be able to produce training that was meaningful to our employees. So that that is, um, you know. That's the that's the craziness that's going on right now. So I can't imagine how that's going to affect people who really do want to have a career field in this area being told, OK, we will hire you, but we won't be able to hire you, you know, beyond a GS 10 uh, right, grade, right. which that salary uh, right now, if you were living in Washington, D.C., that salary starts at about seventy one thousand dollars. Now, to some people that would think, wow, that's a great right, right. Um, but it caps out at 92, 92.9. And, you know, I, it's kind of tough for me to put that number out there, Mark, because people uh, in the area where I live probably would love to have a $72,000 a year job. But when you think about that, the high grades uh, in the federal government go all the way up to $160,000, being capped out at $62,000, I mean, at seven, I mean, sorry, $81,000 is really a travesty. And it, it is very important. Um, I remember I was offered a position teaching on Long Island. And, you know, when you're from the upstate, somebody offers you $125,000, you say, oh, wow, that's great. Except on Long Island, where this was at, that would be poverty level. 
you couldn't touch a house uh, for under like a million. So uh, you got to also consider where where the, the you're assigned to, and uh, if the, if you're capped out at a certain level. Uh, and I think it's very important for us to remember this has been a political decision. This was not a decision made by the military. Right. So this was the military is not the ones that said, hey, we want this. This was the Congress that put this forward because I, I think we've all seen uh, uh, General Milley. Absolutely. Who has said, you know, I want diversity. Diversity is one of our greatest strengths. And so I, I think a lot of people get the idea, well, this is the United States military doing this. And in all honesty, it's not. It's being dictated to them by the politicians in the Congress. And I think that's an important distinction to make so that the people don't, don't place the blame on the wrong place. And the duties that they're describing, uh, say, you know, anyone who develops, refines, implements diversity, equity, and inclusion policy. <laughs> so now, when you think about, you're saying that anyone who develops policy, that's definitely not somebody at a GS10 grade average that's developing policy. So right. you are, you know, who anyone responsible for leading working groups, councils to develop diversity, equity, and inclusion goals and objectives to measure performance and outcomes. Anybody who's responsible for creating and implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion education training courses and workshops. So let's just think about um, who would be someone who would be responsible at that level. We're not talking about someone who conducts training, who is given a clear training package and who's able to go and practice that training and then deliver. We're talking about someone responsible for higher level duties, developing, yep. leading, um, creating, that is someone who is a subject matter expert in their field, put in the time and the effort to um, educate themselves, train um, themselves, and who has made their way through, uh, a lot of times the federal sector, every ability and, and operate at those higher level level grades. It's, it's, really, it's really a very interesting dynamic. And I thought, oh, well, let me just put it out there. I wanted to talk to you about it, get your get your feedback on it before I got really crazy. And, got you know, sometimes this is wrong. No, I think, I think a lot of the things, <laughs> and again, uh, my wife is in HR. She's an XR. She actually went to Nova Southeastern, got her mm -hmm. uh, master's in employment law from Shepherd Broad and EO would always be included in HR. In, in like, and I hate to say it, the real world, because let's face it, sometimes the military, it's not like sometimes the real world, they have their own way of doing things, but you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion would be part of every single HR executives, uh, mandate in, in the world of industry and, and, and outside of the military. So the, I guess my question is, is. I'm assuming that what you're saying is, is that EO is separate of HR in the military. Is that, is that, am I getting that right? In the state, the Equal Employment Opportunity um, Office should not be under the umbrella of the HR office. And, okay. and the reason for that is, is that EEO is neutral, right? It's the place that you go when you feel like you have not been treated fairly. 
Well, most of the I the you know the unfair treatment as people perceive it has to probably do with a lot of HR practices, right? A lot of HR policies or um, the things that have been implemented by their supervisor. When a supervisor either changes, alters uh, a term or condition of employment, most of the times, where do they go uh, to get their guidance and to get their direction? They go to the HR office. Correct. And so there has to be some way of someone being the honest broker for that. And then you think about the influence that... Uh, you want to have someone at the equal employment opportunity area uh, in that office who really deals with and can stand kind of toe to toe with their HR counterpart, equal, you know, and grade. Uh, because when you start having to to share uh, what you might believe are some inconsistencies when you want to, you know, actually stand up and say, hey, listen, I have this issue. You want to be able to do that without the, the, the you know, the, the threat or um, the, you know, having someone at a different grade level that would, you know, you have to actually, you know, I guess, go up above, you know, your, um, your current grade. It's just great to have that, that equity when it comes sure. to the two people that are in charge of HR and in charge of EEO. Now, what this what this bill does not say is it does not say equal employment appointing the Equal Employment Opportunity Office, which is also responsible for compliance. It's really, you know, it's really, it really has its root in dealing with what people are perceiving to be um, the overreach of diversity and inclusion initiatives. Now, in my experience, my EEO office was the office we talked about diversity and we made that a part of our, our training and our mandates to the employees. And so I, I was looking at, I don't know if you're familiar with an organization they call it, it's called Heritage Action for America. So I kind of went to their website because I just wanted to know why, you know, I'm always open-minded, you know, trying to figure out the other side. What are you thinking? What was your rationale behind you know, doing this? Why would you go to the grade? Why would you, why would you try to the career progression of someone in this particular career field? Because what that does for me is it says it's not a career field of importance to the overall mission of the Department of Defense because you chose to cap these salaries. You said, no, you can't, you know, you can't be in these jobs if you're going to be above a, a, a GS um, 10. But what the, um, what Heritage Action for America says, um, Mark, is that uh, the, the purpose for this was to eliminate the corrupt and DEI initiatives that threaten the military's merit-based standards. Um, and so it says this bill rejects the recent moves by the DOD to enact a political agenda. That to me says, okay, if I'm looking at that, there is some concern that when a, a military service member enters the service, that on day one of their training, they are being influenced. They are being um, adversely impacted by the DNI training, the DNI DEI initiatives, and that un, that ultimately goes to um, negatively impact the military's the way the military is currently structured. You move up when you are ready. You you're trained and you're developed, and so it's it's going to somehow undermine what they believe is the, is readiness. Whereas when I was in EEO, we were always trying our best to align diversity, equity, and inclusion to 
the department mission. We said it was not simply a um, a, a legal matter. It was a readiness. Exactly. That in order right. to be ready, in order to be military ready, you needed to be able to respect and honor the diversity that everyone brings to the services. And if you don't do that, it undermines our ability uh, to defend this nation. So uh, that's the kind of mantle that I accept. Uh, I think we all know that the military used to be a very segregated service and that yes. the Department of Defense uh, went to great lengths to try to um, to become a more inclusive uh, service. And we find that it is. When you look at the military, it stands as a, as just a, a bastion of, 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 of inclusion for eliminated a lot of the glass ceiling when it comes to women, minorities, people with, you know, even people with disabilities uh, operating in the military services. It really stands out there, you know, as really the, the one of the most amazing organizations where people can move up um, and, and certainly giving people uh, the, the right and, right and the space to grow and develop. That's, that's my concern about what this does for the military. I, I'm concerned about the message that it sends to people who have dedicated themselves to be in this space. And I'm really, really concerned about the rhetoric um, that it's yeah. providing for the nation who is unaware. Yeah. And, and I, uh, yeah. And I can see where some issues could come with this. Number one, as you say, the people that are going to be involved in this, um, our, our subject matter experts, it's going to be very tough for the military to get a subject matter expert with the expertise that they need to actually apply for this job if it has been capped at, at such a low level. And again, when we say low level, and I agree with you, you know, when somebody says seventy-one, eighty-one thousand dollars, some people say, oh, wow, you know, that that's that's good money. But when you think of the the pay grades that the military offers, I mean, it, it just seems to be very restrictive. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say, wait a minute, I could be going and doing something else where I'm not restricted and I don't have to, I, I don't want to do this, even though maybe I want to, maybe my expertise is in that, but I have no incentive. And really it's a matter of incentive. So incentivizing this, you know, is a, is an important factor. The other thing I see with it is, is that you're right. The military is, has come a long way, and it's important for us to remember that the military is one of the largest employers in the United States. Uh, not only the people that are in service, yes. but the people that, that work for the Department of Defense, and you've got to include those as part of the military. I mean, this is a huge, huge employer. So when they enact something like this, this impacts a lot of people. Now, this directly impacts those people in the uh, in the uh, opportunities department, the the ones that you know try to promote this stuff. Directly impacts them because of their jobs. Mm -hmm. But then there's that fallout. It's definitely going to impact people, uh, the minorities, who are 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 looking for the fair shake. I would always say. Uh, People that say that uh, DEI is is uh, kind of an indoctrination or is an unfair advantage, I would disagree with that. Um, it, it's not an unfair advantage. Everybody should be weighed on their abilities. And uh, I did a lecture to a to a group of group of students at actually at a conference, 
And I said, you know, we have to understand something. Everything is not equal. And to make the assumption that everything is equal or that everyone is equal is, is, is a fallacy. Uh, I can't do math for beans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Somebody can, we are not all equal right. in our abilities, but, but giving somebody the opportunity to be the best that they can be, which I think is an army thing. Isn't that the old army thing? Be the best you could be, uh, you know, the giving them me. that, yeah. that's right. Be the best you could be. Uh, I mean, giving them the opportunity and giving them, uh, the ability to apply themselves to it. That doesn't mean everybody is successful. It's just like school. Not everybody gets an A, I'm, you know, it's kind of the way it works. Uh, some people have different abilities yeah. and, but giving them that equity, giving them that access, giving them that ability, uh, whether the outcome is totally dependent upon the person and should only be dependent upon the abilities and the, and the capabilities of the person, but everyone should have that opportunity to be able to, you know, push the limits of who and what they are so that they can see, am I actually, as like we say, am I being the best I can be and get that opportunity? And I do see where this, um, this would probably, well, not probably definitely would be, uh, an antithesis to this. I do also understand your idea of th that, uh, the office of opportunity, equity and opportunity is different than HR. What I would submit to that. Uh, in defense of the HR in the in the uh, world today, I think a lot of HRs are transforming. Yes, at one time HRs were entirely company centric, but with the amount of lawsuits that companies come under, it is very important for HR to be the balance in 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 the industrial world. We have to be the balance. Um, because if, if somebody isn't about, if somebody can't tell corporate, listen, you can't do that. That costs them money. I mean, my wife, who, again, she, she's an Taking HR executive. That's right. And yes. her attitude has always been my job. Yes. To support the company. Yes. To support the employee. But as far as the, with the employees concerned, make sure you get treated fairly because that's what's supposed to happen. And for the company's concern, make sure you don't do something stupid and get yourself in trouble. And there are so many opportunities Absolutely. to get and yourself so in trouble. Yeah. And you know, it's a very comfortable place to be. Uh, you, sometimes you can become very intimidated. Well, I yeah. think that is really the outcome of something like this. It, it's, it has its residual effects yep. uh, with how how do I now think about what I contribute? What was your purpose in doing this? And so at, before it was, well, you can't pay anybody. At you know, you, at, at some point before in the previous administration, you can't pay for diversity and inclusion training. Now it's not only can you not pay for training, but we're not going to pay you to, but a certain amount to be in this career field. And and you're right, you know, Mark. I tell people all the time, I can treat you, I don't have to treat you equally, I have to treat you equitably. If if you don't come to work, if 
if you don't perform, I have every right and obligation to treat you differently than someone who comes to work and someone who performs. Uh, so those there are some things that we need to teach. And I believe that there are some messages that our nation needs to hear from people who have operated in this space who can counteract some of the some of the you know the the foolishness that comes in what's happening here or, or what's being trans you know transmitted and um, communicated uh, to to the our society as a whole because there is one reason for this and it is polarization in my in my opinion uh, polarizing people uh, yeah. casting dispersion upon um, a, a a an area or a career field where there is no there is no harm. It's like this is not this is an innocuous kind of career field. It's a neutral. It it is not harmful um, to the organization as a whole, and it is not something that impacts mission readiness. I'm in the military. The military was se segregated for some time. I had an uh, ancestor who was a stevedore in World War One. Okay, and there was a definite disparity. It was you know definite um, discrimination um, between the races at that time. And that is what caused the, the Department of Defense to create the Race Relations Institute that's in Florida. It's um, in, um, um, it's uh, at Cocoa Beach in, in Florida. And now it's called the Defense Equal Opportunity Management Institute, but its sole role was to educate us. It was to train uh, people and, and both military and civilians to operate in this career space it was to do research, and it was to send the messaging of of just appreciation for what we all bring to the table. That's okay. the message that the military is trying to send, and um, and hopefully uh, this bill does not pass the Senate. I I don't think it will, but uh, so then it's an exercise in futility here. So what's the reason for it? And we will continue our conversation with Dr. Cradle in our next episode. So that's all the time we have for today's episode. We'd like to thank our sponsors, the JCIS, an open journal for upcoming scholars. The JCIS is currently accepting article submissions for their fall 2023 edition. Call for papers information can be found in the description. The Phoenix Group, an independent research consortium offering solutions for social issues through multidisciplinary and unbiased research. And BH Conflict Resolution Services, a full-service dispute resolution firm offering expert and cost-effective mediation services to couples, groups, and businesses. BHCRS can be reached at www.bhcrs.com. We'd like to thank our podcast partners, Buzzsprout, who hosts the Nova Society, iHeartRadio, where people get their music and podcasts, Apple iTunes, the largest source for music and podcasts on the internet, Spotify, the most popular source for the Nova Society podcast. Finally, PodKite, our analytical partners. We'd like to thank all of our listeners. If you have a comment, question, or would like to be a guest on the Nova Society, we can be reached at nova.society.podcast at gmail.com. We'd also like to remind everyone that the Nova Society podcast is now available on our new YouTube channel. We encourage everyone to check out the channel and like and subscribe. The link can be found in our description. Remember, the power of society is knowledge. So for Dr. Brooklyn Ann Weldon and all of us here at the Nova Society podcast, I'm Dr. Mark Bound. Be well, and we hope to see you again next time.